right every day. He started his day off with prayer. He got up early and he made it a daily habit in his life and ministry. And like us, some days were really good and, you know, there was good meals and the weather was nice and there was, you know, the sun was shining, ministry was fruitful, the jokes and the banter with the guys were on point. All those things were good and well and Jesus started those days of prayer. And on the days where it wasn't good, where he encountered sickness and heartbreak and opposition over and over again and conflict, Jesus started his day with prayer. So how is the habit of prayer working out in your life? I want to encourage us to start somewhere. And this morning, if you're not a believer, if you're not in the family of God, I, I want to encourage you to try prayer out as a way to even communicate with God ahead of time, right? Like there's, there's a sense that the Lord is always listening. And, and if we take the time and set it aside, you know, maybe it's on your ride to work, it's just turning off Spotify for a second and just, just listening and talking to God about how you're feeling. Uh, you know, maybe it's that little gap right? Parents, when you drop off your kids and you have that, those few minutes after they're in school, you know, I don't know what it is for you, but you know what it is for you. And if we look at the example of, of Jesus, we see that he prioritizes prayer. What I also love is that he invites people to pray with him. I think there's a time for private prayer. I think there's a time for us to go into our prayer closet. That's how sometimes churches talk about it. But there's time for us to go and be by ourselves and and, and cry out to God on our own, but there's also times for us to bring people with us in prayer. Come, pray with me. Pray for me. Let's make this a moment that we can share in communication to the Father. And if we look at end verse 34, this is explicitly what Jesus does. Uh, and he asks his guys, hey, Peter, James, John, remain here and watch. And it's implied that they will also pray for Jesus in this moment as well. Now, they don't end up doing that very well. But why does he say that? Why does he invite them into this? Because, look, I, I realize this is about Jesus. The whole Bible is about Jesus, by the way. But, but this narrative specifically is about his last earthly days and his last days in ministry and how it all ends in many ways. But, but remember that Peter, James, John, all the apostles and disciples are about to face hardship as well. There's a lot ahead for them as well. And if you guys know that even the end of their lives, it, it ends violently and, and, and terribly in, in, in one way and in, in glory in another way. But Jesus is basically asking them to pray and to watch because he knows they need it as well. They're about to enter the season that they're not even aware of, about. And these guys specifically, Peter, James, and John, have talked big talk in the past. They've, they've actually said, hey, before, you know, if, if everybody else kind of pieces out on you, Lord, we're here for you. We're going to stick in, and we're going to never give up. And, and, and they say these things, but we realize that, hey, if you, if you want to actually back this talk up, just start here. Just pray. Just stay awake, right? Can you just not fall asleep faithful, obedient in the small things. And I think this speaks to us as well, because many of us want to do big things for God. And we want to be used in these big ways, but are we willing to be faithful in our prayer life? Are we willing to stay awake, 
Years later, the apostle Peter will write in 1 Peter 5, be watchful, be sober-minded. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And I can't help but think that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but also recalling at this moment in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying with Jesus, remembering the simple ask from Jesus to his guys, Peter writes these heartfelt words, church, be watchful, be sober-minded, because I know what it's like to, to miss the mark. And I know what's at stake when you neglect the call to watch and pray. So as we move to point two, we see that not only does Christ call us to pray, but he also shows us how to pray. And this is helpful for us as well, because sometimes we don't know how to pray. I, I, you know, I'm a Christian for a long time. I'm a pastor. I, sometimes I still don't have the words to pray before people, but he shows us. And point two is that, a prayer quest to emulate. Number two, a prayer quest to emulate. Look at verse 35. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground. And Jesus prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. So Jesus leaves his guys. He goes a little bit further even on his own. But fortunately for us, we get a front row seat. We, it may be easy for us to skip some of these details and get caught up in the final night of his life. I mean, we're very close to the end here, right? The trial, the torture, the cross, the empty grave. But I, I think there's this teaching that Jesus is doing here subtly for our benefit and for his disciples' benefit in the midst of it all. And what he does is he gives us this amazing but simple theology of prayer. He says, this is how you pray. Look at verse 36. You'll notice, first of all, how he addresses God. He says, Abba, Father. This is how he addresses the creator of the universe. Abba, Father. And it's the invitation for us to do the same thing. This, this word Abba, it's, it obviously it shows this, this intimate, affectionate relationship he has with his father. Some of you know the Aramaic, uh, in the word Abba, it meant dad or daddy. And it's not a great translation because I don't know very many grown men who call their dad daddy. Uh, if you do, that's fine, no judgment. But, but that's not quite what's happening here. It's something a little bit different, but it would have been very common for for grown men to call their dads Abba. It, it would have been something that would have been commonplace. It would have shown that their relationship was just steeped in affection, right? It's not a word, though, you would commonly use to, to address the sovereign God of the universe. And on a very human level, we tend to go the opposite way, right? Like, if we want to give honor and esteem to someone, we will call them, at the very least, Mr. or Mrs., right? That's what you teach your kids anyway to start with, or sir or ma'am or, you know, doctor or your honor or however you kind of want to address people, but, but not Jesus. Jesus talks to God this way. He says, Abba, Father. He makes this statement, and he models this approach to God the Father, and he says, look, when you talk to God, you go to God as your dad, as somebody like a child going to, to their dad. Back to verse 36. It says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. All things are possible for you. What a great truth to remind ourselves of. Abba, Father, all things are possible. If it, if it wasn't clear, Jesus knows 
the reach of God's arm. When we pray, that is effectively what we are saying, by the way. We cannot accomplish what we're trying to accomplish on our own. Therefore, we pray. Therefore, we ask God to step in, to intervene, because our merit of strength or our intelligence, it's not going to get us there. And so we pray because we know someone who has that ability. And Jesus says it clearly. When it comes to our Heavenly Father, all things are possible for Him. Psalm 147 speaks to this. Actually, a lot of the Psalms do, but this one says, He determines, God determines the number of stars. He gives them all their names. Did you know that all the stars have names? That's, that's crazy, right? Like, we're going to get to heaven one day. We'd spend probably 10 years just like learning about the stars' names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. A few weeks back, I might mention to some of you guys, I went to Joshua Tree on a camping trip. Uh, the good news is I, I survived. Um, something even better is that if you go to Joshua Tree um, and if you are away from lights and if you're kind of like really looking up in the sky, there is there's almost zero uh, pollution visually. You can see the stars. It's amazing. You can see all the stars, all God's creation. And in case you didn't know, there's a lot of stars. Some estimate that there's 200 billion trillion stars. I didn't know that was a number, but they're just adding numbers to. So the point is that when we pray to God, we pray to the one who has named every star, who has put every star in its place. And so we agree with Jesus in our prayers that all things are possible for him. Finally, in verse 36, we see the, one of the most impactful and meaningful things that he says in his prayer. Jesus prays this, remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus does something that I think is quite unique when it comes to the way you and I will sometimes pray. He goes on to pray, not for his will, but for the Father's will to be done. So if you've been around church this redirect should be familiar. We actually don't cover the Lord's Prayer in the Gospel of Mark, but Peter, uh, Peter doesn't talk about it. By the way, um, just quick aside, Mark was written by Peter, and he's, he's, uh, he's reading it. He's reading it aloud to this guy, Mark, his kind of student who's writing it all down. Okay, Maybe that's the first time you've heard that or remembered that, but uh, Peter doesn't cover the Lord's Prayer. Peter is very simple when it comes to these details. But many of you know the Lord's Prayer from other um, parts of the Bible. And even those who aren't Christians can probably spit out a line or two of the Lord's Prayer, right? And what's ironic about it is that it's called the Lord's Prayer, but it's actually for us to pray. That's the way that we should pray. And we see the, some of the very same things in Mark 14. You can read the whole thing in Matthew chapter 6 if you want to. Um, but one of the key things in the Lord's Prayer, in Mark 14, is that we see our Father in heaven is nothing like our earthly Father. And man, that's, that's good news for a lot of us. And that really kind of levels the playing field for a lot of us. Because here's the thing, some of our dads were not great. Some of them were not around. Some of our dads were a disappointment and frustrating, and they did more harm than good. Now, some of you had great dads, and praise God for that. Um, and, and that's, that's awesome. They worked hard. They served their family as well. Either way, our heavenly father is nothing like our earthly dad. And so when we pray, according to Jesus, we don't pray firstly for what we want. 
We pray, we pray primarily for what God wants. That's, like a, that's a huge shift as we pray. I, in fact, I would say this. I think one of the most, and I wouldn't go around and ask everybody in the room, but one of the most obvious ways to measure, are you a mature believer, is do you pray this way? Do you pray for what you want, or do you pray for what God wants? And look, we can still ask for things. That's okay. We can still ask for, you know, your favorite football team to win, I guess, but <laughs> sometimes we don't get the things we want, Right? We rely on the fact that God, our perfect Father in heaven, must have something else in mind. And this is where I think, if we're honest, a lot of tension comes in our prayer life. A lot of tension comes as we think about how do we relate to a sovereign God who has the ability to do whatever we need him to do, and yet sometimes it doesn't go the way we want. If everything went my way, I would have no problem worshiping God, right? I'd be fine. I'd be happy. If I got everything I want, I'd be totally joyful. But guess what? Sometimes God has something else in mind. God wants me to do things that don't immediately make me happy, that don't immediately bring me joy. But everything that God calls me to, because he is a good heavenly father, everything God calls me to is exactly right. And what I find in my life is a desire to run away from God, when in fact I need to pray. You need to pray, and even Jesus needed to pray, not my will, but yours be done. In other words, when push comes to shove, Lord, I will always defer to you. You always have the last say because I trust you. Because if you are good enough to save me in my sin, then you are certainly good enough to know what's good for my, my life here on earth. Now, the comforting thing here is that if you've ever fought to do the things God has called you to do, if you've ever found the Christian life hard, Jesus knows your pain. Jesus knows what it means to be called to do something very hard. But what's different for you and me, Jesus doesn't just pray that God would make it go away. Jesus prays for the strength to accomplish it. And maybe you need this gentle reminder this morning, with all due respect to whatever you're going through, what, what Jesus had before him is much worse than anything else you and I are facing today. And God gave him the strength to do it. And God can do the same for us. He will give us the strength to accomplish what is in front of us this week this month, this year, whatever it is. Now, I, I realize some people will read this passage and they'll have a hard time with Jesus talking about, you know, take this cup away from me, right? Like, like on the night before he was crucified, he was starting to have cold feet. And if he's, it's like he's saying, you know, take this cup. And if there's any other way, I, I'd, like, I'd like out. But I think that's a misunderstanding of what Jesus is praying. Because it's clear he came to earth knowing his his, his job, right? He, he told the disciples multiple times, I'm going to die. Jesus is not looking for an escape here. I think he's just simply sharing how he feels, though. And he's asking for the strength to accomplish God's will. Now, I hope that as, as you think about the way you pray, the way you approach the Lord with prayer requests and petitions, this is helpful for you as you pray God's will. And may that just be our greatest prayer. God, ha have your will in my life. 
Have your way with my work and career. Have your way with my kids. These kids that oftentimes as parents, we stay up late thinking about or worrying about. Man, God, God's got that. Have your way with my family. I can't control the world. I can't prevent heartache or illness, but I know someone who can, and I trust him. Would you trust God in the same way? Number three, let's move on here. Verse 37 is we see this reminder to persevere in our prayer life. The reminder to persevere. Verse 37 says this, And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to, said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter in a temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus prays to the Father for strength to persevere, to accomplish the task at hand, and we learn the same lesson from the disciples by way of their failure. They don't do that. And in verse 37, you can almost pick up on Jesus' disbelief, right? Like, Simon, are you asleep? Uh, You couldn't stay awake for one hour? And this is Peter, by the way, who literally hours earlier is boasting to everybody who would listen, hey, I'm going to be here to the end. Like, I'm, I'm going to literally, like, I'll, I'll die on the cross. You know, he, he's just being crazy about his words, right? Like, I would literally die with you. And then Jesus wakes him up and says, how about you start by not falling asleep, right? <laughs> Why don't you start there? Like, I'm kind of adding some st- snarkiness here because, honestly, I don't think Jesus is trying to be encouraging because he says something that's so true about the whole of Christian life. He says, He says that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Paul would say the same thing in Romans, uh, to the letter to the Romans. We want to do what's right. We want to fight our sin. We want to kill our sin. We want to get rid of the things we don't want to do. We want to do different things. And yet I still go back to doing the things that I didn't want to do to start with. And and Jesus says, let's try this again. Verse 39 Uh, He says, all right, and again he went and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. Right? A little awkward, right? It's like, are you asleep again? Yep. (laughs) Goes back. He's in agony. He still has his heart for his guys. He knows these guys are going to be challenged. He comes back again. They're sleeping one more time. They don't have an excuse. Verse 41 and he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Man, I, I appreciate all the details of verse you know, 37 through 42. I appreciate the that the Mark kind of gets into the minutia, of the one, two, three times of failure. But again, I kind of just feel for these guys at the same time. They're exhausted, right? And yet, it's this big failure. I, I got to imagine these guys would have loved to have a mulligan, a do-over this whole chapter, right? And, and Jesus says, all right, guys, the time's up. This did not go the way I hoped, but the story has to continue. So I, I, I don't have to remind you that every day, every single day in the Christian life, we face distractions, we face tiredness. We face late nights. We face work uh, you know, difficulties. There's things that usually in my life, it kind of works in this domino effect. And I don't get enough sleep, and that means that I wake up cranky, and that means I said the wrong thing to my wife in the morning, and that means, you know what I mean? It kind of just keeps going. And if, if prayer, listen, if prayer and Bible reading 
And spending time with the Lord is the goal, a small distraction, right? I mean, it, it's just a, this, this quick thing that happens. It takes me off track and steals my time and affection from what's most important. Now, for some of us, our calendar is not so full. Um, and if, if that's the case, uh, th- there's kind of a different posture to this conversation, right? It's more a matter of will. Are you prioritizing prayer? Maybe you've kind of, uh, you know, guarded your calendar in a way where it's like, I, I don't want to put anything on my calendar because I don't want this time in myself. Well, the question for you is, is prayer a priority? You see it as valuable for you because if you're not praying, you have the time. Oftentimes for everyone else, though, your calendar is so full that you better not get sick, Right? You, you better never, ever leave the house late. You better never hit traffic whatsoever because if you do, you're, you're, you're sunk. And so I just want to encourage us, church, to persevere in our prayer. And listen, persevering in our prayer, it does not mean that we have the will or desire to pray. That's not what that means. Persevering in prayer means we allot time for it. Persevering in prayer means we set aside distractions and we make it important. Persevering in prayer means we curate our calendar to make sure that we are awake and ready to engage in life in a way that, that accomplishes prayer. Let me just nitpick a small thing. And by the way, I don't have anybody in mind this morning, all right? Listen, I'm just saying this. If church is important to you on Sundays, how do you spend Sunday mornings? Is it something where you kind of roll out of bed and you're like, what do you want to do for, you know, up until 9.50, right? Like, and every Sunday is kind of a blank slate. Um, or do you wake up eager to worship, right? Do you wake up eager to hear from God's word? Are you excited to see God's family on a Sunday morning? How do you spend your Saturday evenings, right? Are, are you giving God your, your best? Or is it whatever is left over? And I think the same thing applies to our prayer life. And I don't want to hold a legalist view over your head of how you live your life. Do whatever works for you. But I just want to challenge you in areas where you're perhaps blind to. Because persevering in prayer does not mean trying harder. It oftentimes means just being a little bit more thoughtful and organized about what you actually want to do with your life. It's not a matter of will. It's a matter of planning. Do you have a plan to pray? Or do you just think you can, you can wing it? You know, we talked about this last Sunday, but we have this uncanny ability to overestimate ourselves and to think that we can just fit it all in, right? Um, You see students do it when they cram all night, you know, before a test, right? I I did that too, right? You see young couples do that when they make purchases early in their 20s, and they're like, we can figure this out, right? We can can pay for this thing. And, And they have no plan, right? They can't afford it. You see middle-aged people do it when they try to get back in shape, right? And they just overdo it, right? And they injure themselves. And, and here's the thing. A lot of times, we just overestimate ourselves. And the consequences are not fun. They're not very good. But listen to me. When it comes to our sin, the consequences are deadly. And when we overestimate ourselves, what we're doing is we underestimate our sin and weakness. And that's a dangerous place to be. We are weaker than we think. And we have to fight and do everything we can in order to persevere in things like prayer and to persevere in things like holiness. Last point, number four. Things 
won't always go the way you prayed. Things will not always go the way you prayed. Look at verse 43. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer has given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him and once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. This last point is certainly related to the second point. When we pray for God's will to be done, we relinquish control and the entitlement to think that things will go the way we, we hoped and planned. And for Jesus, it's clear through his betrayal. Now, if you remember in verse 32, Jesus told all the disciples to pray. But clearly at some point, under the cover of darkness, Judas makes his way away from the group. And he runs back to the religious leaders. And he's like, hey, I, I got him. I know where he's going. And they worked out this sign ahead of time, this kind of this signal. And it's one of these things we often don't think about because, remember, this is pre-internet, pre-Instagram, pre-TV, newspaper. They needed the sign because they may not have known what Jesus looked like, right? They maybe weren't sure exactly what he looks like. So Jesus, Judas makes these plans. He gets the religious authorities together and say, hey, when I kiss this guy, um, uh, that's the guy. That's the sign. And it's a telling sign that Judas chooses, right? He could have chosen a lot of ways to ID him, right? I'll stand next to him. I'll put my hand on his shoulder, right? It's, it's the guy I talked to at first. I'll point to him and say, that's Jesus, right? There's lots of ways he could have done this. But instead, he says, I'll greet Jesus with a kiss. Before we get too weird about this, it, it would have probably been like a European-style kiss on the cheek kind of thing, right? Like there's this element of like, we need to get past kind of our, our modern understanding of, of that. But it was a symbol uh, of trust and respect. That's what's happening here. And you know what? It actually makes me think even more about Mark 14, verse 21. If you look back at that verse, when Jesus says that for my betrayer, it would have been better if that man had never been born. And that seems harsh. But this kiss kind of shows Judas' true colors in a way. What he's doing is he's adding insult to injury. It's like he's kind of flipping the bird, honestly, to, to Jesus on the way out. And I, maybe that sounds inappropriate, but that's kind of what's happening here. It's like, hey, as I'm betraying you, I'm going to say, I'm going to do something that seems like we're friends. And he calls him rabbi, and he kisses him on the cheek, and in doing so, he betrays the Son of God. I, I've mentioned this before as we talked about Judas, but I just want to remind you, man, are, are we any better one of the things theologically that we have to understand about our sin is that all sin, the consequences, spiritually means that all sin is equal in the eyes of God. Not the consequences necessarily in a human way, but the sin itself. And so if you break the law in a small way, or if you break the law in a big way, either way, you are a lawbreaker. And it's a sobering truth because oftentimes we'll try to, I'll, I'll try to distance myself from Judas, right? Like, what a loser. What a sinner. But we actually do the same thing. Each and every one of us have chosen sin and gone our own way. And that looks differently for many of us. You may not have stood in front of him and kissed him on the cheek, but each one of us have chosen the desires of our heart over what Christ wants for us instead. And so remember, it's, 
not a hypothetical. It's just not the capacity or the possibility to betray him. Like, yeah, I guess in theory it's possible for me to be in Judas's shoes. No. Like, literally, we've already done that. We've all betrayed Jesus with our sin. We are all culpable and capable of sin still. And so zooming out, we have to also remember that while prayer is effective, it may not always go the way we think. It may be easy to think that God was going to do something crazy in these verses, like we're bracing for this big movie getaway scene, right? And, and maybe there's just even this, you know, 11th hour change of heart in Judas, but God has other plans. And listen, on the surface, that may feel disappointing. It feels like the bad guys won the day, but remember how it turns out? Remember what we're going to celebrate in a few weeks, ironically in December, Easter Sunday, right? Jesus willfully goes to the cross. The, the Father's will is done, and he's resurrected from the grave. And so let, let's keep reading here. Verse 47 says this, But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. The disciples have woken up, right? They're finally, like, have a little more energy. The disciples have now been raised from their slumber. They're ready to jump into action. The Gospel of Matthew actually says that it's Peter. Peter pulls out his sword and starts to throw hands. And it's kind of this funny detail because Peter reminds everyone in this moment, everyone for all the time, that Peter does not know how to use a sword, <laughs> right? That he's a fisherman. Uh, and, and Peter probably, when was the last time Peter swung a sword at somebody, right? Probably not very often, right? It's like all those guys, myself included, who have a pocket knife in their pocket, and it's like, one day, you know, if I need to, I'm on it. And it's like, I'll probably cut myself, right, if I open that knife too fast. Probably, probably not too familiar about how to use a sword. I, I could be wrong. Now, Peter might have this whole backstory in heaven one day, and it's like, well, you know, the sword got caught in my, you know, my cloak, and he's got somebody bumped me, whatever. Whatever the case, Peter swings, and he cuts off a dude's ear, the servant of the high priest. Guy's basically standing there doing his job. He's like kind of the servant to this important guy. I love Matthew's telling here. Matthew says Jesus looks at Peter, and he essentially says, Peter, what is your problem? Do you realize I could call down 12 legions of angels to protect me if I wanted to, and you're just swinging a sword? What are you, what are you doing, right? Do you think this is just happening to me? No, I'm letting this happen. I'm allowing these guys to arrest me. And at that moment, Matthew says, Jesus actually picks the ear up off the ground. He kind of brushes it off, and he puts it back on the guy's head, and it heals his ear. It's a crazy little detail of the story. And I'm sure all the guys there arresting Jesus are like, do we still arrest him? Or is he, he says he's the son of God, so that's kind of crazy. Mark 14, 40, it continues. It, it says this, and Jesus said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching, and you do not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled and they all left him and fled. And they all being the disciples, they all being the apostles. I can't say for certain, but I, I almost feel like Jesus' words here is there's a bit of indignation, right? You're going to come at me like a common criminal? You're going to bring a sword and a club? Like a, you brought a stick? You're going to hit me with that stick? What are you, what, why are you, what are you doing? You've seen me in public plenty of times. Arrest me before. What's, what's stopping you then? And here's the thing, it's not your sword, it's not your club that is going to catch me. You're not going to take me down. No, I am laying my life down. 
I'm giving my life up for a very specific reason. The scriptures are going to be fulfilled. And, and listen, I'm going to do the thing the Father has sent me to do. So you don't need a sword. You don't need handcuffs. I, I'm, I'm coming willingly. And, and we see in verse 50, not just a few hours after their boasting, the disciples take off. All of them cut bait and run. Every single one of them ran and left Jesus alone. And Mark, Mark alone ends with this, honestly, this odd detail about one of the guys who runs. Look at verse 51. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, dressed a little lightly to start with. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Some young guy, a young guy who was apparently a little underdressed to start with, right, trailing the group. He's following the action. He's kind of looking a little bit. He's witnessing everything going on. He's close to the conversations. And when it all goes down, one of the guards tries to grab him. He, and, and when he runs away, this, this tunic, this cloth that he's wearing, it comes off. And this young guy just takes off running, and he's just butt naked, right? He's just go running through the forest, right? I mean, it's pretty comical. And it's a little bit fascinating. It's like, why is this in here, right? Like, why, why is this detail here? No one really knows who this guy is. Now, tradition, some theologians think this actually is Mark, the author of the gospel. As Peter is telling the gospel of Mark to Mark, it's, it's actually him. And there's some good reasons for that. Actually, uh, uh, Mark's mom had a house in town, so they would have been close by. We know the early church, church would meet there in the future. And as Mark is writing down Peter's account of Jesus' life, some think this is kind of Mark's way of tipping his hat and sharing this really random but private detail of the night's event, right? And saying, like, it's me. That was me, right? Like, I, can, I made it in, right? Regardless, listen, that young man and those disciples, they run. And this is where I want to end here. I, I think it reminds me of the way that sometimes I will respond. Sometimes you will respond. On that night, everybody ran away. And something about the end of the story, how things don't end on a high note, how things don't, don't work out the way it's supposed to, it honestly just feels kind of real. It feels the, the, the lack of tidiness, Right? Uh, it doesn't paint anybody in a positive light, and it reminds me of our tendency to run away from God when things are hard. But in reality, and here's where I want to end, I think it needs to be the opposite. When things are hard, what if we ran in our fear and our failure and our spiritual shame towards God? And I think that's what he wants from us. In, in a way, we run full circle towards the priority of prayer. We lift up our needs we lift up our fears, our petitions, and request to God through prayer. So that's, that's my hope for us, that we would prioritize prayer in that way, that when others would run, when our heart wants to run, that we would stick, stick around and pray. Let's do that now. Let's pray. Let's bow our heads. God, we are grateful for this time to reflect and to read about Passion Week and about this, this night in Gethsemane. Lord, um, it's convicting to think about how you would turn to the Father, Jesus, in this moment and, and pray and, and ask for help and ask for strength to accomplish the Father's will. And, and Lord, we are faced every day with hardship. Maybe not, it's, it's not as hard as what you go through, Lord, what you've gone through, but God, it's, it's difficult. We all have hard things. And Lord, are, are we faithful to pray? 
I can say honestly that I, I'm, not, I'm not faithful in that way. I wish I was more faithful. And, and God, I, I pray that we would all grow in this area. Lord, I, I pray that we would persevere in the faith and that we would settle in our hearts that the God we serve is, is good and sovereign and knows what's best for our life. And so, Lord, as we pray, would we do so with humility, honoring you, Lord, first. God, thank you for sending your son for us, that while we were still sinners, you, you died for us. He died for us. God, we, we didn't deserve that. And so, God, as we pray to you, we, we, we praise you, we give you honor for that. We love you and praise in your name. Amen.